2 Thessalonians chapter 2. My intention is to go through chapters 2 and 3 tonight. Beginning in verse 1, let's get a running start. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Father, bless the study time tonight. I just ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us spiritual wisdom, spiritual discernment, spiritual revelation, Father, that we can digest all of these things, both the, the, the practical that Paul will, will bring us into and the prophetic. Um, Lord, may we not miss a thing in our study tonight and really any time when we open your word, Lord. Thank you for being our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we looked at these first five verses on Sunday, and I, I realized that Second Thessalonians is truly a pocket-sized prophetic panorama. It is amazing to me, this, this tiny little letter, this diminutive letter of Paul, just three chapters, and even within that, just 12 verses where he's dealing specifically with prophecy. And yet so much is contained in these 12 verses. It, it's breathtaking, the expanse that Paul covers as we look at these things. And then if you combine in the, the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians, man, it's just amazing how much in the earliest letters of Paul are covered regarding eschatology, prophetic teaching on the end times. We've already looked at the apostasia. We understand that now Paul says clearly uh, in verse 3 that the apostasia comes first. The apostasia, what was translated in our Bibles today as apostasy, but we defined it, I think, a little more clearly. I still hold to that ever since Sunday. I still haven't changed my mind on this. But apostasia, apo meaning from, stasia, where I stand. And so the primary uh, definition or translation of that word should be departure. A departure from where I stand, from one geographical location to another. And we looked at that in depth on Sunday. And if you haven't heard that, you need to listen to it. Because it is, I believe, referring to the rapture of the church. And I know that that is, I had a couple of people come up and say, that's, that's a different uh, perspective than I've heard. And I understand that. It's a very different perspective than I used to have. But looking at it closely, understanding, as I said Sunday, that the first seven English translations... All translated, apostasia, the departure. Which reads very differently if you were to read it that way. Let no one in any way deceive you, verse 3. For the day of the Lord will not come unless the departure comes first. Well, that sounds much more like our leaving to be with Jesus. As he said, John fourteen three. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I'll receive you to myself. Oh, by the way, another little prophetic side note. We looked at Matthew 24 where Jesus talked about one will be taken, one will be left. 
And I mentioned that one will be taken is that Greek word paralambano. Guess what? When Jesus says, I will come again and receive you to myself, receive you to myself, is paralambano. It's the same word that he uses to describe in Matthew 24 the person who is taken as opposed to the person who is left. So again, this this concept, this idea of the rapture of the church, Paul clearly spells it out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Clearly spells it out. That we will be caught up. There's no other way to to translate or understand that. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, again, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. No other way to understand that. It's very clear. So it's not like we need all these other support verses, but we have them. So the apostasia, it comes first. Then we learn that the man of lawlessness is revealed. Daniel 9.27 prophesied that he would sign a covenant with the people, with Israel, for seven years. And at the signing of that covenant, see this is one of the reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, because we do not know the day or the hour. But if the church is raptured after the signing of that covenant, we would know exactly the day or the hour. Whether it's a mid-tribulation view, it would be exactly three and a half years from when he signs the covenant. Or a post-tribulation view, exactly seven years after Antichrist signs the covenant. And if I've already lost you tonight, pick up one of these little cards and jot down a question. (laughs) We'll come back to it next week. So the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Apostasia first. The departure first, then the man of lawlessness is revealed, then three and a half years into the tribulation, as Paul describes in these first five verses, this man of lawlessness, this son of perdition, commits the abomination of desolation, enters the temple, and establishes himself as being God. And that word is confirmed in Daniel 11.31, in Matthew 24.15. Some of these verses may not even be up there tonight because we have other verses to get to. But now we come to verse 6, and from verses 6 through 12, Paul gives gives more eschatological insights. Goes even further with this, things that he had already taught the Thessalonians, but also some things that we won't hear anywhere else, but right here. Verse 6, And you know what restrains him, that is the man of lawlessness, Antichrist, you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Don't we know that? Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose power is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. My goodness, what is all this about? A restraining influence that's going to somehow be removed and then Antichrist floods in and and then God's going to delude people? What does this mean? Come back Sunday and we will cover these six verses. But I needed to give you that background. We're going to unpack all that. There's so much there, again, just to look at and to consider and, and to really think through together. 
But picking up now with all that in mind, all that prophetic understanding and what, what Paul has laid out here, remember these are things that he had taught the people in Thessalonica before. They had already heard this. He is just confirming what he taught. He's reminding them what he taught. But now we come to verse 13, and it's the reason why he reminds them of all these things again. He said, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God has chosen you from the beginning. Marvelous. All these awesome and and fearful realities of the tribulation are not for the chosen and the called of God. They are not for you. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. He has chosen you, get this, from the beginning. From the beginning of what? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning He's talking about. And my brothers and sisters, you were chosen from the beginning. If that doesn't elevate your sense of of who you are in Christ Jesus, I don't know what will. That for all of history, since before God said, let there be light, He chose you. He knew you. He said, He's mine. She belongs to me. Chosen from the beginning. Now Isaiah... Has the Lord saying this, Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So for anyone who thinks that God is passive, think again. He's patient, but He is not passive. And He has chosen, and He has desired, and He has planned, and He is pulling it all off with absolute efficiency and precision. And He chose you from the beginning. Paul confirms this. Ephesians 1 verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Sounds like Calvin is right. (laughs) Of course, then Paul says in Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Well, that sounds like Arminius was right. Now, you may have heard of Calvin. You might not know much about Arminius, but I guarantee you, whether you know these men or their debate or not, you have been influenced by them. Everyone in every walk of the church today has been influenced by Calvin or Arminius. 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 It's Arminianism. You've been influenced by these guys. They sat long and thought hard and wrote volumes. They debated each other. They they expressed theological understanding that is still debated today. One thing to both of their credit. 
Because what tends to happen is we tend to side up. You know, we, we pick our party, and that's where we stand. Come hell or high water, that's my, these are my people. Calvin, he's my guy, or Arminius, he's my guy, and that's where I stand. Well, listen, understand that John Calvin and Arminius, these two men, they did not have the access to Google. They didn't have the access to information like we do. And I was thinking today, thank God for men like this who poured over the scriptures and prayer with little or nothing else to formulate the understanding of what the Word of God said. Now that to me is remarkable. That without all the aids and help, and I have a lot of help. I've told you, I feel sometimes like I just stand like a little midget on the shoulders of giants. To share the things that I share and to teach the things that I teach. Yes, I have the Word of God, but I also have access to just about any information I can get my hands on to study and understand. And if there's a passage of Scripture I'm unclear on, man, I can go to the scholars. I can go to the bright uh, students of Scripture. I can go to other pastors. I can listen. I can read. I can study. It's, it's simple to a degree. <laughs> but I also have the Holy Spirit, who I always go to first. These guys had the Spirit, and they had the Word. And that's it. So they should be honored, even if they're both wrong on certain points. And they are. And both are right on certain points as well. So wherever you stand on the debate of these two, understand that in terms of God's divine election... that is, predestination or Him having chosen you from the beginning... And the concept of human choice, no, we chose him, guess what? Both Calvin and Arminius were right. They're both right. Yes, it is election. Yes, it is human choice. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, you have free will. And it goes hand in hand. And Peter would agree with Paul on this. Peter who said in 1 Peter 1 verse 2, to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And and that's the key right there. Yes, God chose you from the very beginning, knew you before you existed, and He also, by His foreknowledge, knew what you would choose, and therefore chose you because He knew what you would choose. It works perfectly. God being the great I Am and knowing everything, already knew what you would choose. But here, it's more than just that He knew you would choose Him, so He chose you. He knew you would choose Him, so He predestined you in that choice. What does that mean? It means He shored you up. It means He bolstered your faith. It means because He knew... there, There are mysteries here beyond me. So I'm just saying this to the best of my ability. Because He knew that you would choose Him, He made sure you would choose Him. Isn't that great? And when I say great, I mean awesome and beyond my pea brain to explain any better. He knew and therefore He chose. He reinforces your choice. By the way, I'll give you a little hint about the deluding influence that we will look at on Sunday morning. The deluding influence is all about reinforcing a choice that is made. If you come to Him in faith, man, God reinforces that. If you come to Him in rebellion or reject Him outright... There is a day coming when He will reinforce that. He will influence your choice. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Well, I happen to know that Pharaoh 
had his heart hardened by God. How do we explain that? Ten times the scriptures tell us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. The first five times, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The second five times, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you see? Pharaoh made the choice. And God said, therefore, I'm going to help you make the choice that you've made. I will support, I will reinforce what you have chosen. Now, we've been over this many times, thankfully, through the letters of Paul. But I'll say one more time, if you happen to be one who, man, I think I'm a Christian. I think I'm chosen by God. How do I know if I'm really chosen by God? The answer is simple. Choose Him. Choose Him and you will have already been chosen. Do you see? My choice of Him is not hindered by His choice of me. It is encouraged. It is reinforced. So He chose you for salvation. Note this from the beginning, for salvation through sanctification. Now, note the way he says that, because that's, that's beautiful. I still find it absolutely amazing. He did not choose us for sanctification unto salvation. He chose us for salvation. And then he sanctifies us for it. So, wow, I mean, this is the love of God. Salvation is a condition. It's kind of like pregnancy. You either are or you aren't. You know, it's not a maybe, it's not a guess. You either are saved or you're not saved. And once you have salvation, once you're saved, that is a condition. Sanctification is a process. And the way our human minds think, normally the process comes before the condition. Okay? The sugar comes before the diabetes. Just as an example. The process first, you know, the the working out at the gym comes before the musculature. But in God's case, in the case of eternity, salvation first. You say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe. I give you my life. Salvation, you are in the condition of the saved. But, but, now the rest of your life God sanctifies you for the salvation He already gave you. It's amazing. Well, so what's my part in it? Very simply, through sancti- for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. By the Spirit. So this is the work that God does, not the work that you do. It's His Spirit who both saves and sanctifies our part. Faith in the truth. Just put your faith in the truth. What does that mean? That means take Him at His word. That means you trust Him. You believe Him to do what He said He's going to do. Faith in the truth. The truth is the Word. The Word is Christ who said, I am the truth. Therefore, faith in the truth is walking in a trust relationship with Jesus Christ. And taking God at His Word, which is exactly what we're doing tonight. We open up His Word. We study His Word. We pour over His Word. We seek to understand His Word because His Word is truth. And because Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth, your Word is truth. So it's faith in truth. It's as pure and as simple as that. And then Paul says in verse 14, it was for this He called you through our Gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want a mind-blowing experience? Go read Revelation chapter 1 and the description of Jesus in His glory. 
And Paul here has, honestly, the audacity to say that through all of this sanctification and salvation by the Spirit, and all we do is we just believe in the truth that we gain now the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about undeserved. I get His glory? That's amazing. I don't have to win the voice. I just get His glory. I just show up and I receive the glory. What does that mean? Understand this. This is not something you can work for, work up, or even work out because it is His glory. So underline that in your Bibles. This is His glory. Paul says that you may gain His glory. So understand it. It's not yours. Right? It's it's His. And God is very clear about His glory Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. By the way, when he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. Well, that's kind of weird in our language. Because normally a Lord is not the name. You're Lord so-and-so, right? Or you're King so-and-so. Well, in the scriptures, I am the Lord. He's saying, I am Yahweh. And that is my name. It's the name he gave to Moses in Exodus 3. I am that I am, Yahweh. So he says, I am Yahweh, and I will not give my glory to another. He repeats himself, Isaiah 48, 11. My glory I will not give to another. Then how in the world can Paul go out on such a limb and say that we are going to gain his glory if he does not give his glory to another? I've got an example for you. I I hesitate to use it because it's a little weak, but I think it's it's the best I got. Does a Seahawks fan win the Super Bowl? Does the 12th man win the Super Bowl? I mean, think about it. When they won, a couple years, a few years ago, when they won, hey, I gloried in the team. And I gloried in a game well played, but I'm no Russell Wilson, no matter how fast I can get to the kitchen and back with chips and dips. Okay, I, I am no Richard Sherman, <laughs> no matter how well I can defend my bowl of chili. I'm no Pete Carroll, even if I've got my hand on the remote control the entire game. It's silliness to think so. We jump up and down as if, yes, we won! No, you sat there, they won. The glory is not ours, and yet the glory is ours. Second Thessalonians 1.10 says, He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who believe. His glory just gets on us. Gets all over. It's still His glory. It's not my glory. But I now gain His glory in the same way that I glory in a, a Seahawks win. And again, I, I told you it's a flimsy example because it's a human fleshly emotional example compared to a huge spiritual example. In that awesome moment when he comes to be glorified in his saints, we will gain his glory in two ways. Note these. Number one. We will glorify Him through the very salvation and sanctification He accomplished in us. That as we show up on that glorious day of the revelation of all that He's done, 
as we are there and He is glorified in His saints, all living beings, that is human and otherwise, including angels, all living beings will look on Jesus and see what He did to save you and me, and they will glorify Him. And we gain that glory. Because we bring glory to Him. Not because we did anything, but because of what He did in us and through us and for us in our salvation and our sanctification. So we gain His glory. We're there just swimming in the glory of Jesus as everybody's praising Him and we're praising Him and we are there with Him, His saints. We glorify Him and so gain His glory. But there's another way. We gain His glory by simply standing in His presence. And that's what I mean when I say His glory gets all over us. To be that, can you imagine? Back to the to the, the silly example that the Seahawks. Can you imagine at the end of the game being on the field when the winning touchdown is scored? Can you imagine standing right next to Russell Wilson as the trophy is being handed for you know Super Bowl? 2018. Because we all know it's coming, right? Can you imagine standing there? And you're, you're, you know, and the cameras are going off, and you're kind of going. <laughs> As if you had anything to do with it, but the glory gets on you, right? The moment, the, 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 everything that comes into it. But it's even more so because in a spiritual sense, as we glorify Him, we gain His glory by simply being in His presence. Jude 24 tells us He's able to keep you from stumbling and to, stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Remember what happened with Moses? Moses says, show me your glory. And God said, oh, Moses, Exodus 32 or 33. Show me your glory. God said, in essence, and I'm really paraphrasing this, okay? Bro, if I showed you my glory, it would wipe you off the planet. I'll tell you what I'll do. You can see my goodness. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick you in the cleft of this rock over here. I'm going to put my hand on you. And as I pass by, you can see my goodness as it trails off. And he does so and he declares himself and describes himself in this marvelous scene. Moses, meanwhile, is in the cleft of the rock. Now, God told Moses, you can't see my glory because see, Moses, no one can see me and live. He'll be deader than a doornail. So you can't see my glory, but hide in the cleft of the rock. And I'll let you see my goodness. What's different between you and Moses is that you not only will see His glory, but you will gain His glory because you will be in the presence full on of His glory. Won't that kill us? You've already died to yourself. See, if we've died with Christ, we are now alive to God through Christ. So the death has already happened. Not a problem. And, and get this, We'll see God's glory because we're in the cleft of the rock, Jesus Christ. We've been given that picture, I believe, through Moses of what is coming. We will see His goodness, know His goodness, taste and see that the Lord is good, and we will bask in the very presence of His glory as it gets all over us. Verse 15, Paul says, So then, brethren... Now let me ask you, are you encouraged yet tonight? Man, 
If I'm having a hard day, I've got to come right back here and read this again. And that's what Paul's doing in this letter. He is encouraging a very afflicted people. And don't forget that. As you're looking at this, the Thessalonians are being beat up for their faith in Jesus, worried that they missed the rapture. Everything seems to be so hard. Is, is this the way it's supposed to be, Paul? And then he lays all this on them. And I'll tell you what, sitting there listening to the first time this was read in Thessalonica, I would have been going, yeah, baby. Right on. Far out. Rick, get out of the 60s and 70s. I can't. <laughs> Verse 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by letter from us. Now note this. Interesting. That is Paul's one-verse answer to the forger that he mentions in verse 2. What did he say in verse 2? Compare the two. Verse 2, he said, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, and now he encourages them to hold to the traditions. Hold to the traditions, Paul says. That's kind of weird because I'm not a traditional guy. And over the years, perhaps here at the bridge, you've heard me say we are not about religion. We're not about upholding religious tradition for the sake of tradition. And, and I'm not a traditional guy. Well, I didn't used to be. It's funny. The older you get, the more traditional you tend to be. You may not think of it as in terms of traditions, but there are just certain things you're done. You're done. I'm not doing the new thing. They can come out with the iPhone 27. I don't care. I don't want it. I am this close to going back to a flip phone. I'm telling you. Because I'm done with all the new stuff. You know, I'm becoming a traditional guy. There are certain habits I have. I realized the other day I have had tea, cereal, and orange juice for my breakfast. That or sausage and an egg. It's one of the two. I think I'm going on 15 years. I don't have, I've never varied from one of those two. That's a traditional guy. Something's weird about this. There are assumed behaviors. Things that that I've taken on. Things that I I do, that you do. that You don't even know why you're doing them. They're your traditions, man. They're just what you do. I have become comfortable with certain things, stuff that I am used to. And you know what? (laughs) And I got an amen from Daniel. And you know what? That defines church tradition. Church tradition is when we've gotten comfortable with what we're used to. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When he says, hold to the traditions, he uses this word, and you might want to note this, paradosis. P-A-R-A-D-O-S-I-S. Paradosis. Hold to the paradosis. Well, what is the paradosis? Translated traditions, but that's not a good enough translation. It's authoritative instruction. Or some verses now, are, some translations say ordinances. But understand, paradosis is not assumed behavior. It is doctrinally learned. That's paradosis. The traditions, he says, which we taught you, not the things that you have assumed. I I used to assume that, truly, instrumental music was sinful. Oh, not ACDC, just worship. (laughs) 
You laugh, it's ridiculous. But I grew up with a tradition that said, if you don't sing and worship God a cappella, it's wrong, it's literally wrong. Until I got into college and I realized I had never actually been taught that. I just assumed it because I grew up in an a cappella fellowship. Started to realize I was surrounded by people who assumed that that was the right way to worship God. Not with guitars and women up on the stage and all this other crazy stuff. Assumptions. Now, think about this. We all have faith assumptions. And some of those assumptions are more based in our traditions and what we kind of grew up with or saw or even assumed here at the bridge. There are things we do at the bridge that if we stop doing them, people would say, why don't we do that anymore? Give me chapter and verse. You know, that's not why we do these things. Learned behavior, biblically taught, paradosis versus assumptions. And it's the assumptions that get us into trouble. It's the assumptions that cause us to become legalistic. Now, note this. With this paradosis, the, the traditions which we taught you, hold fast to the ordinances, the things. These are important. These matter. These are legitimate here. These are worth holding fast to and keeping. The paradosis. But get this again. In Paul's counter-argument to the forger, notice in verse 2, he refers to being disturbed by either a spirit, a message, or a letter as if from us. But here, in verse 15, he says, hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by letter from us. What does he leave out? Spirit. That's interesting to me. This indicates, in verse 2, spirit, message, or letter, indicates that confusion may very well have come from someone claiming a prophetic or spiritual utterance. Thus saith the Lord, the day of the Lord is upon us. And everybody's, what? What? This came by a spirit. Well, it must be legitimate. And so people go, well... Here's the easy answer. Just avoid the Spirit and you solve all problems of spiritual or prophetic utterances. Keep the Spirit out and you don't have to worry about the messiness of the Pentecostals. Those charismatic, you know, wingnuts. Just leave the Spirit out. Well, you solve one problem and create an entirely new one. You, you keep out any sense of the possibility that maybe something might be a little wonky and you get really dry. I've said this before, the Word of God is the most amazing, living, and active book. I, I can't even hardly call it a book. It's so living and active of anything I've ever read, ever studied, ever looked at. But that's the Spirit teaching us. That's the Spirit explaining to me. You remove the Spirit and this book becomes dry and hard to understand and the pages get cracked and yellowed. We need the Spirit to teach us the Word. And we need the Word to ground us in the Spirit. And Paul's answer to this spirit or letter or message is hold to the paradosis which you were taught either by word or by letter from us. He doesn't appeal to hey man, if you sense it spiritually, go for it. That's dangerous. It always has been. To base my entire faith on what I think I'm spiritually experiencing without any grounding in the paradosis. 
This is the paradosis. The word that we have been taught. And Paul's saying this very clearly to Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, that this is the word you've been taught. Hold to it. Hold to what I taught you. Hold to what you have heard from us. And if we send you another letter, then that's cool too. But you hold to that teaching. And what did Paul say about the Holy Spirit? 1 Thessalonians 5.19, remember this? Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise the propheteia. That is prophetic utterance. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now this is another reason why I think 1 Thessalonians was 2 and 2 Thessalonians was 1. Because when he sends off 1 Thessalonians, I think it came afterward. And now he's saying, hey listen, the paradosis is the thing. Hold fast to it. But don't quench the Spirit. Don't, don't go that route either. You, you need Spirit and Word. So how then do we test the Spirit? How do we test to know a prophetic utterance, a spiritual utterance from a brother or sister? How do we know it is legitimate and actually from the Lord as opposed to from our own emotions? The paradoxes. The Word of God. He has given us to test everything. Is it in concert with the Word, the character, the nature of God Himself? Does it sound like Jesus? Okay then. Does it conflict with? or contradict, or express or explain something that we have never seen or heard before in Scripture, then I put up a big question mark. But it doesn't mean that we try to shut down spiritual things. No, we need the Spirit. Because without the Spirit, we're going to be dry, and we're going to be boring. And I grew up in that church. I'm not saying which one. Some of you probably have a guess. Verse 16. And then Paul says, Now may our Lord... Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. I really like that. Verses 16 and 17 are the the second of of four bite-sized prayers that we're going to come back to. Not this Sunday, but a week from Sunday I want to talk about the bite-sized prayers of 2 Thessalonians because they're Powerful. They're just little nuggets, but when you take them all together and read through them and study them, wow, amazing. And this prayer, he just prays that they would be comforted and strengthened for every good work and word. Look over at verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. He says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And I think that connects there to the prayer that he prays for them. Every good work and word. Don't grow weary of doing good. Let me ask you a question. Do you? Do you ever just grow weary of doing good? Do you ever just want to be bad? (laughs) Do you ever just feel like sinning? Not because you really want to sin, but man, I've been good for like 365 days in a row. I just want to be a stinker for a few minutes. I just want to do something bad. Just because it's out there, man. And maybe you're not like that. You're going, I didn't think Pastor Rick was, but apparently we got a problem. (laughs) Maybe not, but do you ever just grow tired of having to be right and good and holy and pursue righteousness? And man, the world we're living in, doesn't it just get heavy sometimes? That you feel like just by doing good... I'm worn out. 
I am exhausted. What? Do you ever feel like you're the only good one in the room? And I don't mean arrogantly. I really don't. Man, I am so righteous and all the rest of you are so... I mean, seriously, you're, you're in a room with a group full of people and you just feel like, am I the only one who's seeing how wrong this is? Am I the only one who's feeling weird about where we're going with this? Am I only, the only one who's bothered by this conversation? Do you ever grow weary of doing good? Listen, we have both the comfort and the strength of His Spirit to keep from growing weary. That's what He prays. The one who has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts. He prays this prayer. We have godly comfort, spiritual strength, and that's how we are able to continue to do good even when we grow weary, and sometimes we will. Sometimes you will be that person sitting there just going, I just got to go take a nap because I am tired of standing for what is right in a world that is so wrong. We have the comfort and we have the strength of God's Spirit. And by the way, we have something else too. 